This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. Thank you very much for joining us today on this episode. We have a special guest for you. Uh, we have Chaplain Eric. Uh, for those of you who read uh, the blog of hospicechaplaincy.com, you'll find uh, an amazing article that he wrote on Stone the Crow, a chaplain's uh, reflection on death and dying. Eric, can you tell us, uh, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you very much. I really appreciate this, the opportunity to talk to you guys today. Yeah. So when you write a piece like that, uh, on the one that we we have featured at hospicechaplaincy.com, um, what goes through your mind? What what inspires you to go down after a visit and write something special like that? For me, I really, my goal that, that kind of brings that writing about is to really kind of be a curator of someone else's story. And I think that's really what I tried to capture when I do get the opportunity to journal and to write some of these things down. I do it for one, you know, for me to kind of process through it and, uh, you know, to, to work through that interaction, but also to just to capture the, the beauty of, of people's stories. Yeah, I think that all of us have a story to tell. Um, you know, for me as a chaplain, it's to listen enough to hear those stories. I've had unique encounters with people that we would consider have done great things and encounters with people that really never feel like they accomplished greatness. But if you listen close enough to their story, you'll begin to hear things that put those stories in a different light. You know, to hear someone say, you know, they were the greatest father that I could have ever dreamed of, you know, suddenly that story of, great accomplishments in the world, you know, things that society will remember us by, uh, you know, become a little different in the light when you say, hey, they were a wonderful parent or uh, the best friend that I could ask for. Um, Suddenly those stories carry a whole lot more weight than, um, you know, than some of the more profound things that people do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I often think that that many of us are going to leave an impact that they won't name a building after us or, uh, you know, there won't be much fuss of a large memorial. There's huge impact that we can make in the world around us by, um, by being all that we can be to those that that are close to us and that love us. Well, Eric, listening to the call, uh, listening to the uh, story, uh, sometimes you gotta, it it takes time for some people to to get you where they trust you. And it is quite an uh, essential part of what it means to be working in this thing called uh, hospice chaplaincy. How do you uh, develop that? How do you do that in your way? Boy, I I always wish that I I could have more time, you know. Uh Couldn't agree more. (laughs) we, 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 We get our first encounter with a patient and you quickly realize that, uh, you know, time is not going to be very kind to us in some of these situations. So, um, you have to be fluid, think on your feet. For me, 
um, it kind of comes natural. I, I want to mm-hmm. connect on, a, on conversationally with a person, and um, you know, I don't want to come in with a title uh, or with pomp and circumstance and mm-hmm. um, some of these things that are, if we're not cautious, that we can carry into the room with us. My main goal, oftentimes, is to be a friend. How can I be a friend to this person? You know, in this moment, mm. you know, sometimes time doesn't doesn't play very nicely with those situations, but we do our best. And when you have that time, which can be very fleeting, as you note, uh, it is so powerful. And unfortunately, I didn't read your 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 posting there. Uh, I wish I had now, because I I know that after <laughs> you sent us information about yourself, and it was your story of how it was that you came here into this by this this thing called chaplaincy. It resonated so much with me about how things, what I learned as a child. Uh, would you be willing to share with us some of what it was like for you to be, uh, and I know that it's, you know, we all have our stories that lead up to why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be willing to share with us some of that story? Sure. Uh, I think through most of my life of trying to reconcile what that story meant to me, you know, uh, maybe frustration over how some things have went ultimately have led me to a place where you suddenly realize what well, you're right where God intended you to be, mm-hmm. uh, even through mm-hmm. some difficulties or hardships. I'm from Canton, Ohio, uh, originally home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Oh. Um, it is kind of a city in, in transition. It's a, you know one of those smaller, medium-sized cities that uh, you know the steel mills are are smaller and not as prevalent as they once were, you know, so I went from that Rust Belt Midwest, you know, childhood where I still think that I had a sweet spot in history where we were still kids that gathered together and rode our bikes around the neighborhood and and all kind of mm-hmm. hung out together and ran together, you know, th- that kind of uh, of childhood. On the other side, when you would walk through the door at home and close the door behind you, um, there were some challenges. I had um, parents that both struggled with some addiction. So while I wouldn't say it was a terrible childhood, it definitely wasn't normal in some, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a whole lot of ways. You know, well, there's some things that we that we could have done better. We lived in some moments of lack as a result of, you know, those choices and those addictions. And while I've struggled and wrestled with a lot of the questions of why, suddenly, you know, I realized that God will shine a light on that. And you realize that, that people go through things that we wish that, that were different, you know, that we wish that that wasn't an element of being faced with. But suddenly now I can see people in the light of, yes, they may struggle with addiction um, or alcoholism, but I got to see a unique perspective that these are people that I love and cared about that mean the world to me. Um, so it, it doesn't, uh, for me, I think it's careful in our interactions that we don't dehumanize a situation or slap a label on something and um, Mm. be removed from it because people are still parents. They're still, you know, siblings, they're still loved ones. And um, that's what my parents are to me, even though that there was those, you know, seasons of, of difficulty related to, you know, to addiction and alcoholism. But as a child, Eric, um, as a child, how did you process, you know, you're looking at your parents and the addictions they were going through how did sure. you make sense of the world? So I think a, a lot of times I I couldn't make clear sense of it. Um, mm. I did always feel that 
that I had a sense of calling or a sense of purpose that um, I would one day make a difference in spite of these type of circumstances. So learning to, you know, to kind of balance all of those things uh, while one family member dealing with addiction was also the same one that was my earliest spiritual mentor. Hmm. One of my earliest memories as a child was my mom sitting on the bedside with me explaining to me what it means to pray and how we could commune with God even in this, you know, bedroom on the bedside. Um, how we could have this audience or this moment of communing with God um, to share our innermost needs and desires and uh, all of those things. And all of that came from a person that had, you know, her own sense of, of struggles and difficulties in a lot of ways. But there was a beauty that was revealed um, by exposing me to that spiritual practice of prayer and, and communing with God. I found it interesting when you were <clears throat> writing about Mom that she would help those who needed help. And always, I, and I, I remember as a kid growing up, and I'm a, I'm sure I'm not going to ask you how old you are because I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember when I was at home, and in the summertime, and always coming to the back door, we had what we considered the hobos coming, because we were about two, about a block and a half from uh, a, a railroad tracks, and these guys would ride on the railroad track, get off, and come in, and they'd come looking. For something to eat and my mom wouldn't let them in the house but she would always get them something to eat and i you know i still remember that to this day and i had to be you know in my six seven eight years old type thing i know that that had to be a, a wonderful example for you to see what it is that that we're all children of god yeah yeah she um very similar situation kind of had some guys drifting through came to the door uh, one day they knocked on the door, mom went to the door and I'm, you know, kind of peeking around the corner, seeing what's going on. And, hmm. uh, you know, in my gut, I'm going, man, these guys are probably up to no good. I mean, I don't know what they, <laughs> you know, what they were up to, but mom said, hold on and went and made them a couple sandwiches and, you know, fed them on the porch and sent them on their way. And I asked her, those guys were, were, you know, they looked like sketchy characters. What are you doing? You know, she's like, well, you know, they needed something in that moment. And I was mm -hmm. able to, you know, to provide that need. And, um, you know, she would always say that, you know, maybe we're entertaining angels unaware that these mm -hmm. could be opportunities mm -hmm. to, um, you know, to minister to somebody, but also to, um, there was always a spiritual component to it. That wow. she would never, uh, you know, let us walk away from a situation without trying to instill that in us. How did that uh, impact you? It definitely changed the way uh, I see people. You know, people from all walks of life, different statuses uh, in life. You know, the some of the things that we carry. You know, some people may have prominent places in in our society. Some people, uh, you know, maybe in the margins. But I, I've I strive to always treat people the same, regardless of where they're at, because that person that's maybe been marginalized or is pushed out to the side, they weren't always that way. Mm -hmm. um, there's things that happen. There's situations that come about in life. Um, as we know, w you know we're going to have and experience suffering in this world, and things don't always work. Um, the fairy tale endings don't always happen. So... Um, to treat those people with dignity and respect at all times, regardless of who they are. 
So is that kind of is that the background that led you to becoming a pastor? Yeah, so my my journey to be a pastor kind of came out of um I was born uh, so I'll share I'm 42, so in the mid to late 70s when I was born I was 2 months premature. And the doctors came in. My dad was in the Navy. We were living in Jacksonville, Florida, and they came in and said, you got about one hour to spend with your son. Um, that's all that we anticipate him being with you. So here he is. Do what you need to do. Um, you know, and they left her, you know, with, with my, you know, my, gave me to my mom and said, you've got about an hour with him, and we don't anticipate him to live beyond that. So, um, so here I am, you know, thankfully and very grateful for that. Um, but she said that what she learned in that moment was the the power of prayer for her uh, mm-hmm. to begin to pray and to call upon God for uh, intervention in this situation. And, you know, shared with me that they would get on the phone and call all of their friends and family all throughout the United States. And uh, my grandfather was a pastor and would have this network of churches praying and calling mm-hmm. out, uh, you know, my name in this situation for, you know, God's intervention in that and what that she always shared that story with me, uh, you know, as a teenager, I'm rolling my eyes thinking I don't need to hear this anymore. Um, but, you know, on my birthday, she would share that, you know, God had a special plan and a purpose for you that he um, decided to intervene and, you know, that that you have this life to live and instilled in me that it was special, that it should be cared for. And that was always my draw to, okay, maybe I'm here for for a reason to do yeah. some good in this world and, um, you know, to, to go where God, God leads me. So that opened up the early door for me to pursue ministry, mm. um, always feeling a sense of calling towards that. And then is that when you planted a church or? Um, so I went into, um, began, got my, worked in youth ministry for a while, uh, went into pastoral ministry at my first church in rural Ohio in an uh, Amish community on the outskirts of an Amish community, not being from that background. So uh, I come from a Wesleyan Pentecostal background. And so we were kind of there, just church that had been there. And um, boy, I learned some great lessons about life and about people, um, you know, in that season, but never felt comfortable. Um, I always felt like I had to, you know, so there's a, there's a, uh, an interesting amount of, of keeping people, uh, herding cats, I guess is the best way to put it when you're leading a church, you know, how do we get the majority of people to move in one common direction? Mm. And, and that created a lot of frustration. Um, and you know, we always, uh, the danger of comparison, you know, yeah. as a, as a pastor, those moments of comparing myself in my, uh, mid to late twenties to the pastor down the road with the mega church and the, uh, you know, the latest and greatest. And here we are trying to carve out this little existence in this community, the danger of comparison of never feeling like I measured up, you know, the faithfulness over what, you know, God giving you 50 people to care for. Um, you know, versus, you know, measuring ourselves by accomplishments or numerical achievements. I never felt comfortable in that. I loved people. Yeah. Um, loved going to the bedside. I loved being called upon, strange as it is, in crisis, you know, when I was needed in the hospital. Well, I felt like I, I thrived and I was in my element, you know, at the bedside. Uh, or in tragedy to be uh, to be able to just sit and 
allow a person to process everything that was going on and never offer judgment or um, discredit to their feelings in those ways, which ultimately fits pretty good for a chaplain, I think. I would definitely uh, agree with you on that because it, it takes it takes a special person to know where they are to walk their journey in this spiritual life that we uh, do as a hospice chaplain because we we can't go in with an agenda. We just have to go in and see where people are, uh, where the folk are at. Uh, yeah, sound like you're very good at that. Where did where did you get your your experience? I guess you should say I could say because it sound you sound so like me. Pardon me, I don't hate to say that, but I mean that's how I've done my ministry. That's how I've done my chaplaincy uh, along the same road that you're walking. And I, I, I get so, I just wonder how you got there. Well, I had during my internship um, prior to my first pastoral appointment, I uh, did an internship with a veteran seasoned pastor that, uh, you know, he's one of the rare guys that uh, I think at this point he's probably well over 50 years still serving in that one pastorate and wow. just loves that community, loves those people. Hmm. And um, I was placed under him during my internship, and right away he got a call um, being in Ohio uh, to go to Kentucky, which was a you know, four or five hour drive for us to get in the car and to go and to do a funeral. So, man, I had, you know, best seats in the house to mm. pick the brain of this uh -huh. uh, veteran minister during this trip. And I still joke with him that we didn't pass an exit that had a Cracker Barrel um, <laughs> without stopping. You know, I've never had that much Cracker Barrel in my life. So, um, but during this trip, um, I had this chance to, to kind of see how he was wired to see what he was thinking. And, and all of my uh, expertise in my 20s, you know, saying, hey, this family must have been really influential that you're hopping in the car, uh, you know, and we're, we're spending a couple days going down for this funeral. Mm. And uh, he just kind of listened. I said, well, they must have really been, boy, I bet they really gave, you know, were they major financial contributors to, um, you know, to this church? And, you know, he just listened and it allowed me to talk. And it turns out that this family um, didn't do any more other than show up just maybe two or three times over the course of the span of years. What an but example. He became, he became their pastor, their shepherd. Hmm. And I said, well, why, if, if, if they weren't great contributors, if they weren't great attenders, if they weren't influential, then why are we spending uh, this time and energy and all this effort to drive to this rural place in Kentucky for a couple hours and hop in the car and go back. And, and the words that he said stuck with me. He said, because they need me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they asked for him. They needed him in that moment. And that impacted me so much more because then, you know, that if they would have been record contributors to that congregation in, in some way. So the fact that that stuck with me, that is really what I carried with me out of that internship that, uh -huh. you know, of telling me that real ministry doesn't happen in the pulpit, it happens at the bedside. You know, it happens in those That's moments right. of crisis. Mm -hmm. It happens at the funeral homes. Um, you know, yeah, you can deliver a great sermon, and they may remember it, you know, mm -hmm. for a couple of days. But chances are um, they will remember uh, those moments when you came to them when they truly yeah, needed you. They certainly do. It, it's I've run into so many times where uh, families have had their, their, lifeline, their lifetime pastor, 
And then all of a sudden comes into this time when there's a need for them to be there at the bedside. And you call them and they say, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have enough time. And I shake my head and I, I, my heart aches for that family who has put all that love and expectation into that person and they're not there. And it, it just, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how much you pay. It doesn't matter how many times you've been in church. It just matters that you have the relationship and you're supposed to treasure that. And you know how to develop that with in such a short period of time. And that is truly a gift. Do you see mm-hmm. yourself? What are your other gifts? Um, boy, I just, um, I just love people. I'd say that that's right. really what, where my gifting comes out of. I just mm-hmm. love people um, I, I, almost uh, magnetically at times <laughs> um, where I'm just drawn in and, and just want to just, I just want to know that person. I want to yep. know Yep. Um, it, it can be topical. It can be surface level. I just want to know how your day is, or, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, the big stuff as well. Um, you know, just, just getting to know people, getting to hear those those stories, uh, motivate me to try to be a better person and to you know to be a caretaker of those stories. And it sounds so selfish, but I find myself going, okay, how can I apply that in my life? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I make my life um, you know shine a little bit like this individual's life did? Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. And it looks like beyond loving to know people, uh, you have a genuine uh, concern to walk with them, even in their pain and suffering. And uh, so yeah. modeling compassion, how did, that, how did that begin for you? Is it from your upbringing at home or the, the mentorship you received from the pastors you've worked with? I think, you know, it, it, all of the ingredients were kind of thrown in there by different people. You know, I think mm. you, you, you said it well, you know, my upbringing, uh, even though my parents had those, those struggles and those, um, you know, issues that created a lot of, a lot of suffering in life, mm. they were also, they were... Um, you know, my dad was a pastor's kid, so he was the uh, the epitome of that, wore that badge. And, um, you know, they <laughs> met at a church when my grandfather was appointed there. Uh, he was the, uh, my mother's father was the Sunday school superintendent. So they were deeply uh, interwoven within, you know, religion and spirituality. So in the middle of those addictions, um, we still honored God in our home in a sense that, you know, we didn't take God's name in vain. So they instilled those things in me, those properties in me. And I just think it just kind of stuck, you know, that uh, that it doesn't scare me to walk into a situation where maybe it's messy. And while maybe, you know, they, they may not have, have uh, people may not get the return call from the church um, because of a messy lifestyle that they've lived or something that doesn't meet a particular standard that we as people sometimes unfortunately set. Mm. Um, to me, I want to run into those situations and say, okay, I know things are messy. Uh, I know this is an ideal. I know you've made decisions and choices and we're going to, we're going to own those, but we're going to walk in it from this point and I'm going to be here with you. 
mm. um, is really how I try to, to approach, you know, that. Um, something that I've recently learned, I was excited to move from the Rust Belt uh, down to the Bible Belt. I thought, man, this is going to be great. What a whole new experience this is going to be. You know, everybody's going to be happy and rainbows. And the reality <laughs> of it is, is that regardless of where we are geographically, people struggle. Mm. You know, regardless of, you know, numbers of church attendance or spirituality, you know, when you're faced with end of life, a lot of that stuff washes away and you're just left with this, the bare essentials of of life and living and what that all means. Mm. And I've just kind of discovered that there's a lot of messiness. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of, of, of trials that people, regardless of where we're at geographically and regardless of the amounts of times that we darken the door mm. um, of a place of worship, those things still remain. They do. How do you deal with individuals who are reticent to the idea that they need a chaplain? You know, they really don't feel that it's necessary. Their spiritual life isn't... Uh, that important to them. How do you how do you deal with that? Um, my approach is, you know, give me an opportunity to just just give me one one chance to come and talk to you. Right. Um, you know, I have no agenda. I'm not selling you anything. If you don't need me and don't want to see me after that, that's okay. But I want an opportunity to sit with you. And sometimes I'll either make it, uh, let me come out as a friend, or sometimes I'll try to make it more formal. Let me come out as a spiritual care practitioner, uh, you know, and, and with that as a practitioner, you know, we have all of our other disciplines that are represented, and we're kind of out here on the fringe, and sometimes people don't understand this, you know. And um, Tell me about I look it. at myself as a, as a spiritual care practitioner. I want to walk in there. Uh, this is our doctor has a lab coat. You know, I want to be clothed in compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as our doctor, our nurses have the stethoscope, you know, I want that draped around my neck, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as love, you know, and mm-hmm. just to, to really be a practitioner of spiritual care, um, you know, just let me come in and just let me talk to you just for a few minutes. Um, suddenly, hopefully in, in those situations, I can grow less talkative and more, you know, listening to them and allow that, that to unfold. That's an excellent approach uh, for those who are listening to this and realizing that they're thinking about trying to do this, uh, this thing called hospice chaplaincy. Because you can't go in with an agenda. That's to me, was one of the main things that I learned when I started out in this ministry. Uh, because, you know, I can't, I don't know what their spiritual journey has been thus far. And sometimes I don't even tell you. They just want someone there that, that will listen to them, and you can guide them in certain ways with certain questions. And then, like you say, I mean, sometimes they just need a friend and someone that they can just relate to. In and then you can get, then you can start digging into the the more challenging uh, parts of what's going on. First, they need to know you're just you're not going to be judging them, and you're not going to. <laughs> You're not going to be talking down at them. You're just going to be listening, and loving them. Sure. So uh, how did you uh, make that transition from being a church pastor to now being by the bedside as a hospice chaplain? And was it, it looks like it was a, li- a little easier, but I'm sure there's some serious transition there. Yeah, there was a season of, um, you know, kind of deep frustration on my part uh, of going, okay, God, you know, I, I know you've placed me in these ministry settings, these church settings. 
you know, went from senior pastor to, you know, developing still to this day lifelong relationships with people in those congregations to thinking, okay, God, there's something else. Do we need to start a church? And uh, boy, I failed miserably as a church planner, you know, and I say that with all the love and uh, and joking that I can. That is a special uh, calling, but uh, leads to a place of frustration of feeling, man, am I doing what God wants me to do? And uh, in a relationship, my wife quickly picked up on that, of sensing those those frustrations. Um, I was always a bivocational pastor, so always working another job and making those, uh, you know, delicate balancing act that that is. And she began as a nurse working in hospice and was working in an administrative role and was going over regulations. And she realized um, that I had what was needed for chaplaincy. Mm. And, you know, that kind of became dinnertime conversation as I'm listening to, you know, her journey through hospice and, and what that means to her as being a caregiver and thinking, boy, that sounds really beautiful. And uh, so I started as a volunteer. Um, you know, is this going to be too heavy to deal with? Is it, you know, the we think of hospice in, in one certain light sometimes and with the heaviness that it can bring, but it's not mm-hmm. always that way. Yeah. So I started as a volunteer, just um, doing whatever was needed and eventually was brought on as a PRN chaplain. You know, kind of filling in on some weekends and holidays and freeing guys up to take some vacations. And uh, and then all of a sudden, I think through, you know, trust and some experience, they gave me a shot. And mm. boy, it's been great. It's been one of the, it's been life-changing, you know, haven't looked back since. Yeah. So what about uh, chaplaincy has surprised you the most? Or what have you learned now that you didn't know coming into uh, hospice chaplaincy? I, I think, you know, I thought I'd learned it, you know, in a, in a black and white setting, um, but suffering, uh, I think has been one thing that I'm walking away with today of realizing that, um, that we suffer, uh, mm-hmm. as people, you know, all walks of life, whether you have, uh, $0 in the bank or whether you're a multimillionaire doesn't spare us from the reality that uh, in this, you know, fallen, crazy world that we live in, that we're going to face times of suffering. And, um, you know, that I think has been one of the biggest things of, as as a chaplain of, we tend to want to run away from that mm. as people, you know, we want to run away from the painful things and that natural response. But as a chaplain, sometimes uh, we have to hang in there with suffering, you know, a little differently. You know, it's kind of like a kid on a bicycle, you know, uh, if you're going on, you know, downhill and you're going to hit a ramp, you know, there's a point in that where you know what's going to happen, but you've got to, you got to hold steady uh, and, and push through that uncomfortable moment. Hmm. It's been the, one of the biggest challenges. Um, one chaplain acquaintance of mine said that, you know, sometimes we have to find ourselves sitting in the ash pile with people hmm. uh, in order to, you know, to kind of work through those seasons or those periods of suffering. Well, that's one of the things in my experience that I, people I'm sure have asked you as they've asked me, and I know they've asked Saul, uh, why do you do this? How is it that you do this? You're, you're always dealing with someone who's dying. And, you know, I've, I know clergy out there that, uh, oh, you, you can more than, please take care of my people while they're dying because 
they don't like looking at it. They don't like being part of it. They'll just they'll do the funeral, but getting that, and then maybe they might visit them afterwards once or twice. Yeah. Uh, have you had that experience with other pastors with where you feel that this is very difficult for them? Yeah, I mean, if if you want to. Um you know, put a damper on a social gathering, and people ask what you do. Just mention that you're a hospice chaplain, and suddenly well, that's never uh, you happened can to me. The whole time. <laughs> so, um, I truly think that as a chaplain, I think we're made up in a way similar to a paramedic or to a police officer or a firefighter that we want to rush into the, um, you know, we want to rush into the action, not for our own, um, you know, accolades, but if if we don't do it, who else would? Yes. Uh, type thing, uh, and I think that's where I'm at with it. Well, if if I'm not willing to sit in there uh, with a patient uh, at the bedside, then then who else would be able to do it? Right. And um, you know, if I don't show up, who else would show? Up? So for me, that's kind of how I view it. But then you know, once you get to that place where you you go, uh, you know, you find out what motivates you and why you do what you do. I do it. There's a, there's a, a huge selfish component every time I feel feel like I say this because I want to apply the wisdom that I can gain from other people to my life. Oh, isn't that um, isn't that a great isn't it great how people teach you even at even, are, even at end of life? Yes, yes. It goes back to that. Um, you know, they they are truly are living human documents. You know, oh, absolutely. Uh, allow them to tell that story, and if you listen close enough, if you can get rid of your uh, our own biases and things that we carry in with us, you know, they can share um, great wisdom and insight that um, truly I think the world needs. We need more of that uh, in our world to apply the wisdom um, of other people to make this world better. Where have you seen God in all of this? I've seen and God how, in and all how of have this. you seen God? Yes, I've seen God in all of this. In everything, I've seen him much different than prior to chaplaincy. Sometimes I think we look at. For me, I can say I'll make I statements that I looked at God as one that is just standing and waiting to share uh, his disapproval about a decision or an action in our life. And through chaplaincy, I see God as compassionate and merciful and full of grace, ready to meet us wherever we are, no matter what we've done. Uh, and, you know, because God is ready and he's in those moments, um, you know, desiring a closeness with us as people. A beautiful example of that um, I can think of, um, I had an opportunity to I had a patient, and we'll just say that he just wasn't good. Nothing in his life was good. He made terrible decisions, Was um, destroyed his family in the process of those decisions, and the judge basically sent him as far away as he could um, to spend the last few weeks of his life. Family was alienated, and all of a sudden through this, here I am dealing with an individual, wasn't pleasant, wasn't pretty, wasn't anything that you would have dinnertime conversation, uh, you know, about the things that he's done. Hmm. And in that moment, I found that this um, gentleman found a peace with God as he faced his last day, that he found that he could reconcile with God through not only, you know, asking forgiveness, but, but forgiving himself. Mm -hmm. um, for the carnage that he was leaving behind him. 
so for me, that beauty of of understanding that God was there, um, you know, with the convict, just as much as He was there with the sweet widow lady in church every Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. the same God was real and powerful for both and for all. That's where I discovered a, a you know what I think a more accurate depiction of God is not one that is forbearing and uh, waiting to strike uh, and to share his displeasure about all of our sin, but, um, but, but a God that is merciful and graceful. Um, that's a in powerful, every up and down that's that we a face. powerful tool you have to share with folks, especially when they start questioning, am I worthy enough to go to heaven? Yes. And, you yeah, know, the, there are those people out there who do question that, you know, and, you know, they've been to church every Sunday, they do everything, whatever, blah, 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 and they still feel inadequate. Yet you can walk into the room and just say, uh, believe me or not, I've seen what has happened. And that's a powerful statement. Yeah, I statement. hope I can leave, leave people with that. I really strive to, um, to share that, that view of God. Because sometimes people carry with them the other view. Um, Absolutely. That God, that God is just ready to judge and to strike us down. Mm-hmm. You know, there may be a time and a place for that conversation, and uh, I'll leave that for the theologians to hash out, but <laughs> I want to be at the bedside and to pray, um, hey, here's what I've seen of God's love and mercy in action, and that's available to you. Today. Mm. Uh, so, um, go ahead, sir. Uh, um, before we conclude, uh, what wisdom about life have you learned from working as a hospice chaplain? Don't sweat the small stuff. If I could go back every time um, and save myself the heartache and grief of worrying about things that don't matter, you know, all-consuming things of, you know, man, you know, it just seems like the car broke down, the hot water tank goes out, you know, uh, suddenly, you know, you're compiled with these little issues that are, yeah, they're real problems in life, but they don't truly matter. Um, to allow those things to derail us and to get into effect on how we interact with uh, those that are close to us. If I could take anything away and apply it, it's don't you know, don't worry about this that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, one patient shared with me. Um, I always like to get them talking about, hey, have you taken any trips? Was there anything that was important to you? And uh, tell me about family vacations and those kind of things. And you know, they they invested one particular family invested a whole lot of time and effort into orchestrating this family vacation, um, you know, and only to find themselves stuck on the side of the road, pouring down rain with a flat tire, and you know the frustration that sets in, you know. And as a as a father, I can definitely feel the, the his pain in that situation. Um, but then realizing years later that they didn't talk about the destination they talked about the how they found humor in watching their dad frustratingly trying to change this tire in the pouring down rain you know mm. those moments are the ones that matter it's not always the 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 things that we think are are important oftentimes aren't and to just not allow those things to throw us uh, to get us off task or off course in life Mm. We could all compile all of our list of problems. Really, in the grand scheme of things, if any of us had the unfortunate news to receive a diagnosis today, that list would probably grow a whole lot shorter uh, on what truly matters. So, um, Joe, you have a question? I do have a question for you, Eric. One more question I'd like to hear your answer to, because in my work, 
I'm, I do on call, and I've had one weekend recently where I was just everywhere and had five deaths in a, in a two-day period of time and found myself, as I consider myself, toasted. Uh, how do you take care of yourself? Well, I, I wish that, I could give I, you the great answer. I, that's an important I, I wish question I had the because <laughs> we all need to do that. Yeah, um, I struggle over that. Um, I wish I could do better than that a lot of times. Um, for me, I just try to, I do try to enjoy my family. Good. To try to keep uh, what's important uh, central. The looking for common everyday interactions, trying to embrace those with my kids are important. You know, Disney vacations are great, but they don't really happen too often for us. So, um, you know, I can listen to their voices coming from the back seat, you know, and allow them to share their thoughts and feelings and begin to to develop that understanding. So for me, my self-care is trying to slow down long enough um, yeah. to spend time with uh, with those that I love. I'm an introvert by nature. Hmm. So, you know, I could curl up with a book and be just as happy, um, you know, as, as those extroverts and uh, being centered, central stage somewhere. For me, um, you know, reading and recharging you know, and quiet spaces are, are important to me. And I try to journal. Uh, I wish I could do it more. I wish I could do it better. But I try to journal uh, my thoughts and and to allow those emotions to come through. Mm-hmm. When I had my first moment where, like you said, I was toast. I had a uh, gentleman that was just impactful, beautiful, uh, spent time with him, and suddenly he was gone. And as a chaplain, I'm, I found myself a held it together, got to my car, drove around the corner to the coffee shop, and, and just those emotions flowed. Yep. And I pulled it together, had my cup of coffee, went back to the uh, to our office and reached out to someone that had a ton of experience behind them in hospice. And I said, I can't stop crying over mm-hmm. the loss of this individual, and I feel terrible about it. And she stopped me, and she says, oh, no. She said, they're worthy of your tears. Uh, you know, don't don't ever let that stop you. That that those people, their their lives are worthy mm-hmm. of us to shed tears for. So, allowing those emotions to come through is that, helpful for me as well. That was a wonderful advice by that person. Yeah. Couldn't agree. Yeah, they're they're pretty smart. They're a whole lot smarter than I. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you so? <laughs> you've got yourself an incredible story, Eric, and you're doing incredible work. And I thank you for talking with us. Yes, thank you guys so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Uh, God bless you, brother. All right. Thanks, guys. Let me know if I could ever do anything else. All right. <laughs> All righty. Hey, if you're ever up in Illinois, you know, check us out. I will definitely look you up. Thank you very much. Thanks, okay, Eric. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye that was Chaplain Eric. Uh, you'll find some of his writing at uh, hospicechaplaincy.com. Thank you very much for joining us and for listening to this episode. This show is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios, and our engineer is Brian McKinder. Thank you for listening.